Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This episode of Millennial Love contains themes that some viewers may find distressing. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Millennial Love, a podcast brought to you by The Independent on everything to do with love, sexuality, identity and more. This week I was very excited to be joined by Sophia Smith-Gayler, the amazing journalist and TikTok extraordinaire and author of a new book, Losing It, Sex Education for the 21st Century. We spoke about all things to do with sex and the myths that we were taught about it at school and how they affected us personally and professionally. We spoke about Me Too, boundaries, consent, all sorts of things and so much more. I can't wait for you to hear it. We recorded this episode live at Waterstones in Gower Street in London. I hope you enjoyed the show. Hello everyone, thank you so much for coming. I'm very excited to talk to Sophia about her brilliant book, Losing It, Sex Education for the 21st Century. Uh, So I'm not sure how many of you have had a chance to read the book, so I'm gonna start off by passing off to Sophia to tell us a bit about what it's about and how it came to be. So, ooh, that's a long story, but I'll try and keep it short. Um, Losing It is all about the dispelling the sex myths that continue to rule our lives. And the idea is that every chapter addresses a sex myth. It shows who endorses it, perhaps how influential it is or the harm that it causes. And then I talk to everyone from uh, medical experts to sex therapists uh, to normal people who do or don't have sex. And I ask them, you know, why, how, why not? Um, and lay, lay the case for what the fact-based true story is that we should be telling about sex. So that's what it's about. And did you always want to write about sex education? And when did you kind of realize that this was something that had been percolating in your head for a while, but you actually thought this could be a book and this is something I want to turn into an actual product and really explore a bit deeper? I came up with the idea for the book and then I like Googled, I Googled it. Because also when you do a book proposal, you have to make, you have to kind of say in it why the book should exist and who the sort of competitors are on the market. And I was like, no one has written something that sort of debunks or addresses sex myths in this sort of journalistic manner. Mm-hmm. Um, even about virginity, like the, the first chapter I address, you either find psychologists write about it or the odd historian. I, I've There's nothing written for the lay person in a journalistic manner that kind of interrogates things and and holds people to account, holds the people who need to be held to account. Um, So yeah, that's... Yeah, I agree with you. I think all of that stuff, sex education, traditionally, it's all kind of buried in like an academic book somewhere in the back of a library. It's never really been something that is as accessible as it should be and as it is in the book. And I think there are so many ramifications of that, which you know people our age have really felt the consequences of having grown up with such 
shoddy sex ed at school, which we'll get on to. Um, I guess initially I want to talk to you about how you mapped out the book, because it's all about dispelling the different myths, as you talked about. How did you choose which myths you wanted to focus on, and did they all come to you quite quickly? The book began thinking about the virginity myth. So, um, and the reason it begins with that is because that is how our sex lives often begin. We, we begin with, with the earliest ideas that we are told about what happens when you enter sexual maturity, what is expected of you when you enter sexual maturity, all, all these ideas. It's kind of the, um, you know, we talk about like origin myths for like villains and films. It's the, it's the origin nasty myth of lots of other sex myths that unfold from it. So once you explain the virginity myth and the harm that it causes, that's how the rest of the book charts itself. So I begin with that original idea that the idea that our, our sexual activity somehow connotes a value and makes us vulnerable to judgment from others when we, we allegedly live in a world in which we enjoy sexual liberation and sexual freedom and we should not be judged for that. You know, we're supposed to live in a sex positive world. That obviously is not the case and we do not all have access to, to that sexual freedom. Um, when I think as well about um, if you start believing in those things, you may possibly look for other myths that endorse, endorse that. For example, there's the, the next myth is the, hy the hymen myth, which is so closely um, wound to the virginity myth because people who not only endorse the idea that uh, if you've never had sex, it means something, or if you have had sex, it means something else. Um, you may also find yourself endorsing the idea that someone who, um, a woman who has, who has a sexual history, it is writ into her biology, you know, her anatomy, and it, it, it simply isn't the case. It's complete uh, pseudoscience. Um, then the next myth comes on, the tightness myth, again linked to it, the idea that pe women who have had um, women who are sexually active um that it is reflected in your vaginal laxity somehow again this is a myth uh, however it is endorsed by a lot of people who want to make a lot of money from you um and then it easily fell through to the penetration myth so looking at relationally um what ha how do we define actually define sex this and this is also caused and present in the virginity myth. Because lots of us are encouraged to think of our first time experience as that, one time, not a set of experiences. We're, and we are likely to consider it as the first penetrative moment. And obviously if you start endorsing or scripting sex to everyone as it has to be penetration, you start really excluding a lot of people, you start excluding people with disabilities, you start excluding uh, like the whole LGBT plus community, basically. Um, you also start excluding female pleasure and female uh, capacity for clitoral stimulation. Um, so they all very neatly kind of happened. And then um, the virility myth for me lead, leads on from the penetration myth because the idea that um, the pressures that are put on uh, men, especially heterosexual men, to um, to initiate sex and to be sexually prolific. And I kind of chart what happens when men feel like they don't fulfill this role. What are some of the, um, the harms that are caused by it? The last two chapters, um, I guess are a bit slightly more broader, pulling away slightly from direct conversations about the body. Um, and they look at asexuality and they look at sexlessness, 
So people who may choose to identify as celibate, for example, uh, and the great misunderstanding that people like, how could you not want to have sex? Like sex is natural. Everyone wants to do it. And it's like, mm, no, that's not, that's not actually the case. Um, and uh, there are a lot of people who are confounded by that, um, confounded to the point, as I chart in the book, how um, poorly treated in, in many regards the asexual community are from everything from being pathologized to being abused not only even by straight people, but by people in the LGBT plus community that they see themselves as part of. So it's a very, very isolating experience sometimes. Um, and the last chapter, Consent, is like the thorny one. It's it's probably the most kind of, um, well, I feel like when we talk about sex in the media, it's the zeitgeist to talk about consent. Um, and for many people's current experiences of sex education in schools, it's exactly the same thing. You know, they're presented with special consent workshops in a way that they aren't presented with special workshops about other areas of sex. Um, and of course, it can come across what I really found is how often it comes across as pretty sex negative, um, putting forward consent as this binary of you either say yes or say no, and we'll teach you when to say yes and when to say no. Good luck, go forth. Um, and that simply is not the reality of sex, that's not necessarily the reality of beyond sex. Think about the coercive or non-consensual experience we go through every day and looking at street harassment as a consent issue that should be addressed more in schools, looking at normalized coercion in relationships that may have nothing to do with sex itself, but is part of the power dynamics and gender dynamics that we should all be taught a lot more mm. about. So that's how it kind of, and then I, after I've done all the myths, um, I have a chapter that's on the future of sex. And it looks a little bit at modern sex educators who are doing really incredible things, the obstacles that they're facing, um, some interesting things in tech as well. Um, yeah, so that's how, that's how the book. I think that's important itself. to look at that at the end as well, because it, it's so easy to come away from these things and think, God, it's all so bleak, isn't it? But it, there is a lot of change happening. And, you know, thanks to people such as yourself, there is progress being made and, and in technology and in all of these areas. And I think one of the main things we can do to push forward that change is to just have these discussions that we're having this evening um, and hopefully that people will have after they've read your book. Um, let's go back to the virginity side of things first, because I want to talk a bit about language and the importance of that which you write about in the book and I think it's so interesting like the idea that the terminology losing your virginity in and of itself presents presents sex as a really problematic thing from the get-go and that's the kind of terminology that we were conditioned with growing up and and like you said it's also incredibly exclusive um, tell me a bit more about that and I guess how that influenced the title of your book which I'm guessing it did yeah uh, it's supposed to be like a deep entendre, like because um, losing it will probably instinctively make some people think about having sex for the first time, losing your virginity. Um, I write losing it there to be like, we need to lose concepts and myths such as that in and of itself. Um, yeah, I have a bit in the, in the virginity chapter where I explore how the language that we use around virginity in, in English and in other languages reflects the myths we believe in so even in um so in if we take english for example losing your virginity 
popping or busting a cherry. If we think of some of the idioms that are used around virginity, that's another reason why I have a cherry here. But um, I deliberately asked for a maraschino cherry, not a cherry cherry, you know, not a like raw cherry as well, um, because I wanted it to be like fake, saccharine, sugared, um, just like these myths are. It's like a consumable good, uh, perishable good for one-time use. Um, if we look at other languages, I remember in, um, I had like a, a follower who speaks Urdu tell me how the verb that was used, what there, there are kind of different ways you can say loss in Urdu and um, the word was about used when you describe things that are lost forever. Um, Swedish, someone said it's similar to the, to drop, like you drop it, as if you could like pick it back up again, which I thought was quite funny. Um, but even in Arabic, kasara, um, you break your virginity. Um, and in Arabic, we find a lot of, pro there's a lot of problem problematic language in Arabic used around sex. So, um, in, for example, in the hymen myth, I explore how um, in Arabic, the word hymen is al-bakara, and that literally means virginity membrane. So if you are trying to educate people that actually um, there is no way you can tell somebody's sexual history authoritatively and definitively from an, a hymen examination, it's very hard to persuade if it's called virginity membrane, yeah. um, because that's how the word has been associated. Arabic is not the only language that does this. Um, and what's really, really cool, and I raised this in the last chapter, um, in Swedish, they had the same problem. Madam Sinna was their word for hymen, also meant virginity membrane. And uh, the sort of sex education authority in Sweden did a whole program to try and replace that word with slidkrans, uh, which means vaginal corona. This was before the coronavirus pandemic, so unfortunately. <laughs> but corona means crown. Um, and that's far more, that's far more representative of what the hymen actually is, which is normally, a, it's like a tiny pointless piece of tissue with no known biological purpose, but it's normally kind of ring shaped or crescent shaped. And the idea of it, being crown shaped is quite, you know, it's quite empowering. It, it, it's a sort of part, far more positive image. But the issue with um, the verbs and the nouns used in Arabic is that there is the idea that membrane, it's like a seal. That's, and again, that, that's wrong. It's not a seal. If it were a seal, women would not be able to menstruate. Um, it, is, it is literally a ring of tissue kind of around the opening. Um, and so kasara, to break it, the idea is that when you have sex for the first time, it is broken. And we know that that's, that's not necessarily reflective of what actually sort of biologically occurs. It's wild how much misinformation there is around this stuff. And obviously, I think it, it does mostly affect women, I think. Um, you know, even something as simple as I have friends who last year didn't realise the difference between the vulva and the vagina. And it's things yeah. like that, that it's wild that we're not taught about that at school. 46% of Brits can't do not um recognize or understand that women have three holes yeah 37 percent of brits would mislabel the clitoris on a diagram regardless of gender we often um it's often a joke and i talk about this in the virility myth that we make a lot of jokes about men i notice it's a very uh you know 
female heavy audience so um, that's why I'm bringing it up especially because uh, it's not spoken enough about especially I would say in heterosexual female spaces um, the, the, there is a need to be kinder to men but um, all the jokes that we make fun of men about um, including that they can't find the clitoris actually a lot of women would not know where the clitoris is as well mm. um, we all have to be a bit kinder to each other because uh, who here would have been shown a diagram of clitoris in any lesson not only sex ed but biology I wasn't no, uh, definitely not absolutely not let's talk about the tightness myth that you mentioned earlier because this is also something that again I only really thought about fairly recently when I was writing my book which and aside from the biology side of it there's also the the logistical side of it because if you think about the slut shaming that we attach to that myth yeah which is based on the idea of a woman who sleeps around isn't tight enough why did we do that when a woman who is having lots of sex in a relationship is possibly having more sex than than that person do you know what i mean so it's like it's it's all of these ideas where do you think this comes from and how much how much can we blame porn because that's such an obvious uh you know angle to go down uh, in the book, I reference Amanda Montel, who in one of her books talks about how um, she actually talks about sex being, um, let me think, make sure I remember this accurately. The idea that we even call penetrative sex penetrative, how much of the language that we use around sex is male centric, like male body centered phallocentric you could possibly say um and it was from listening to that and I thought oh my god that's that's so interesting and she talks about how obviously the history of uh documenting and printing pretty much anything for a very very long time rested in those who were literate and had access to printing presses and whatnot and historically this has obviously been skewed as over male and then um we've been able to balance the scales a bit but um the it's very clear, as you say, that um, tightness is used as a way to advertise, uh, to try and get clicks in pornography. Um, it's how a lot of women will describe themselves on OnlyFans in order to get like more people looking. Um, but it is a word entirely used um, for the male gaze, like the male online gaze and male offline gaze as well. Um, it is a word that describes what heterosexual men would enjoy in bed and it's not necessarily the word that you would use from a perspective which is women's health informed, essentially. People with a women's health background, or especially who have pelvic floor therapy specialisms like uh, some of the people that I interviewed, um, if you talk about tightness with the pelvic floor, they use vocabulary like hypertonic. Now, hi I used to have a hypertonic pelvic floor. This is something you see a doctor about. Um, it's, not, it's not a positive thing to have a tight pelvic floor, but because tightness means something else for the other, the other partner involved, it's, it's construed as a positive. Um, in that chapter, there are just, we know that the vaginal rejuvenation market is exploding and we know that um, vaginal tightening methods are a part of that as well as other methods um, and lots as well lots of invasive surgeries which or 
Um, not invasive surgeries, but stuff like lasering, you know, stuff that's like slightly intrusive. There's just like no scientific basis for so much of it. And there was there was one recent study about lasering as well that found that yeah, these these procedures and these providers claim that they're going to improve your sexual confidence or even your sexual function. Um, and it's it's it preys on the fact that we aren't aware of our we aren't taught about our pelvic floors. It preys on the fact that we aren't aware on about the true size of the clitoris. And we, we aren't aware of how everything down there interacts with each other. Because if you were aware, you'd think, oh, my goodness, I can't have surgery there that could affect my capacity for pleasure or I can't have surgery there that it might affect you know the structure of my pelvic floor which is what literally keeps everything in place beyond my sexual organs my bladder um you know everything that's really important down there that you don't want anything going wrong with yeah you see that all the time though don't you with like um like advertisements for vaginal cleansing and oh like, yeah there are there are these sprays aren't there like scent sprays and things like that which which are really really toxic and wasn't there was the whole um I mean it's a whole industry there was the whole Gwyneth Paltrow vaginal steaming it all also um collides with a lot of people's faith identities and spiritual identities and that's where it can get pretty mm -hmm. challenging because in telling some I this happened to me the other day in a cafe when I was having a chat with someone um someone really really powerfully based on their on these kind of um spirituality system that they chose to believe in really believed in womb healing and as part of that believed in vaginal steaming believed in um vaginal wands um and i basically said to her you're entitled to believe in what you want but they have been shown to be negative for women's sexual mm. health Trying to think of a really early incarnation of all of this. <laughs> Just thinking of the bajazzle. I <laughs> remember the bajazzle and Towie. That's that they used to. What did they do? They put like gemstones and stuff on themselves. This is still something that comes up a lot in um, sex education delivered in schools. When I remember there was a really good clip on Channel Four a few years ago when they did a program about sex ed in schools. Um, so many young people. Also, I don't even touch this myth in the book, but the idea that. Um, being hairless is being more clean. It's hygienic, and how how we've let, let that belief happen when it's the it's the opposite. The less hair you have, the more vulnerable that you are to infections. Mm. Um, and once once you have someone sort of basically explain how that is, you sort of think, oh yeah, I understand that now. Yeah, and it's not that hard. Like we could talk about it a lot more. Mm. Um, a lot a lot of a lot of sex misinformation could be very easily debunked just with a bit more effort yeah and a bit more ethically made mainstream porn yeah. perhaps as well yeah but, i mean <laughs> but there is there is a part of the porn industry that's got will never have an interest in being ethical mm. that's the problem uh and there will always be people who never want to pay for porn yeah if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery think again Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime even better this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment no maintenance required improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I guess kind of related is the, is the virility myth, isn't it? And I'm pleased you write about this in the book because I think, like you said, it's important to look at the pressures that men are under and the way that that affects women as well and all of us. You know, So talk to me a bit about what the virility myth is and what some of the men you spoke to, what were some of their main concerns and how does it impact them? And, and what are the consequences on their female partners if they're straight? Yeah, so like two of the really interesting things for me that came out of that chapter. Um, so again, the premise is, if men are expected to sort of um, behave according to this gender norm of virility, being sexually prolific, sexually powerful, what happens when they feel like they aren't fulfilling that. Um, and in the book, I look at two areas. I look at men who experience sexual dysfunction and cannot perform. It's really interesting. Performance anxiety has become a phrase only to describe male sexual dysfunction, where I think uh, if you actually look at uh, the extent of what uh, female sexual dis dysfunction can be as well. You would also find conditions in which performance anxiety is a th and, and anxiety is a thing. Um, but with uh, erectile dysfunction in particular, we we know that um, men find it more challenging than women historically to go to a healthcare provider and say that they have a problem. Um, that being said, erectile dysfunction has enjoyed a lot more airtime an awareness raising than sort of the equivalent dysfunctions uh, on women's side. And a lot of money going into research into it as opposed to female yep. sexual health yeah, conditions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, big time. Um, but yeah, it was really heartbreaking speaking to people who felt like they were going to lose their partners. Um, there is data from one survey that tells us that there are some men who would rather break up with their partners than speak to them honestly about it um, when communication oh. could help solve it. Um, a big thing is that a lot of people associate erectile dysfunction with older age. And we actually know that, uh, you know, there's a there's a decent number of uh, men in their late teens and, and 20s and 30s who have it as well. But traditionally, that's probably more likely going to be tied to uh, anxiety about sex as opposed to a phys physiological blood flow issue, which Viagra sorts. So what's happened is we know that Erectile dysfunction is medicalized. We know that there are pills that you can get that can help out, but they help out with blood flow. So you could wind up getting a pill over the counter thinking, oh my goodness, I have this problem, but this is going to, you know, everyone says this works. You take it and it still doesn't work. The problem gets worse. And um, 
if, if, you st if you keep avoiding sort of meeting with a healthcare professional or sex therapist and getting to the root of the problem, you keep evading it. Online, there's an awful lot of sort of anonymous groups in which men speak a lot about, about um, erectile dysfunction. But there's so much pseudoscience in it. If, if, if you think about women's health having goop, um, go, to the, go to men's health, NoFap. Anyone here heard of, heard of NoFap? Um, you know, very bizarre online communities that um, tell you, you know, to solve your erectile dysfunction, just never, ever, ever masturbate. And that's not what, uh, that's, <laughs> that's not what, that's not what sex therapists say. No, the point is you, you might need to reassess your relationship with sort of self-pleasure, but would never recommend never ever doing it again kind of thing. Um, and it's just like, you need to communicate and have a chat with with an expert, but because people feel so like, oh, it's not it's not manly to go and do and admit that. Um, re I can't remember if it's from twenty twenty one or twenty twenty two, but there's a piece of research. I wish it came out in time for this, but it didn't. Um, this piece of research that suggests that men are more likely to be open about the fact that they uh, take medication for erectile dysfunction if they identify as a feminist. I just think that's fascinating. The other issue that comes up in the virility myth is incels. Um, incels and um, is the complete extreme of men who who become very very self loathing simply for the for the what they believe is the unique fact that they cannot uh, have sex or access sex with anyone. Um, but then, what's less extreme? But far wider and therefore super distressing as well is, is the kind of casualized misogyny online. This is often referred to more broadly as the manosphere, which has a number of different sort of misogynistic groups in it that behave online. Um, but again, um, there's a lot of overlap between incel and incel adjacent spaces online and communities about erectile dysfunction. So it's reasonable to believe that some people their inability to access sex may be informed by perceived sexlessness mm. or kind of a self-fulfilling cycle. You don't know quite where it starts. Um, we also know, uh, when I say we, I know because I did, I kind of did some, I don't know what to call it. I did a data thing where I um, looked up lots of people and what I would described as an incel adjacent forum. And I looked at what other Reddit communities they belonged to to see if anything interesting oh, came interesting. up. Um, I mean, mainly gaming, <laughs> which like, I'm, I love gaming. So, you know, I hope that they find some joy in those groups. Um, but a lot about virginity anxiety. Really? Suggesting that, but we know if you're already, for, if you're joining an online community predicated around none of you can have sex kind of makes sense but a lot of so a lot of them have not been able to have sex even the first time and there mm. there's been very barely any research on incels and their psychological profile but there has been more research on people who identify as older virgins um men who identify as older virgins mm. and we know that they um people who do not feel like they are in sync with their peers feel excluded, contributes to lower mental health, low self-esteem. Our society, again, it goes back, everything always goes back to the virginity myth, but our society 
helps make them feel as bad as they do. And we don't live in the sort of most helpful society mm. for people. Um, you also have to think about everything from global economic crises, uh, unemployment in so many places, um, even online dating in which a number of men do describe frustrations with how online dating works. Um, and anecdotally, we do know that um, you know, women swipe more than men. We know in heterosexual da online dating, we know that that happens and it skews the app mm. as a result. Uh, and it can make it quite challenging for men to meet someone online um, compared to women. All of these things are stopping some men from being able to perform in the way that they wish to. And the problem comes when that is distressing when they don't, when, when men don't think, oh, there are so many problems in society. That's why I'm going through these things. That's why my female friends are going through their things. We should all help each other out. That's not, that's not the conclusion a lot of people come to, especially if they're in these confirmation bias echo chambers online. The conclusion that they draw to is, oh my God, I can't win. I can't win. I can't get a job. I can't get a girl. Um, but those girls are having sex with other people. Why are they having sex with guys like that? Why can't they have sex with guys like me? Um, and there's one man that I interview in the book who says, he, he explains how throughout his teenage years and at university, he just never got the hang of talking to girls. And in talking to him, he started off very friendly and polite. But as I got deeper and deeper into the discussion with him, the language he was using was quite don't know what the word is quite incendiary but he he you know he would swear a little bit more and he would say how can some girl fuck some random guy and not me no real sense of like bitterness and resentment about this mm. um and there is a really fascinating uh, um forum that i talk about in the book which is incel exit when i wrote the book it had seven thousand members i checked the other day it has ten thousand members now these are people on reddit who think they've become an incel and want to escape. There is a forum for them. Um, and I spoke to someone who, I think he used to volunteer for Childline. This Damn. is someone who's always just been quite altruistic, um, PhD psychology student. And he hangs out on Incel Exit and you can see by his posts, he spends a lot of time on there, mm. helping people out. And he said, oh, I've never been an incel myself, but I know how it feels to be like a late bloomer. Uh, and for him, it was part of his, especially over the pandemic, it was something he was doing voluntarily to help people. And um, he said two really, really interesting things. He said, yes, I think a lot of them need sex education because you can see in their sex negativity, they have a complete misunderstanding of what sex actually is. So the, the, the even sort of duration of a, a sexual session a lot of them come up with ideas that are like completely not what the reality is. You know, they have completely unrealistic expectations of them of sex. Um, and the other thing was that, yeah, and incels define themselves as incels by sex, their sexual identity, sexual access. However, there's more to that that makes someone an incel. It's other things. It's like desperately low self-esteem. Um, of course, in many cases, sadly, is misogyny as well. Mm. Um, but it's so many things that compound and lead to people feeling this way. It, that brings me 
kind of neatly onto what I wanted to talk to you about next, which is when this kind of mentality leads to violence and not always sexual violence, but I guess let's talk specifically about sexual violence and, and about your chapter on consent, which I think is something that I'm always very keen to talk about because like you said, even now, well, we're 2022, five years, if my maths is right, which it might not be, after, after Me Too, uh, and still such, such a wide cultural misunderstanding of sexual violence in general and what consent even means. Um, so why did you want to address it in this book? And what would you say to someone who says, consent, me too, we've done that, put that away, done that, don't need to talk about it anymore. Why do we need to still yeah. talk about it? So this links really well, like I said, because in the virility myth, one of the studies that I reference is one from 2015. It was a survey of 600 men, I think it was in the US, and they found that men who felt like they didn't um, fit in with traditional male uh, gender norms could be more prone to violence. And the could is important because it wasn't all men. It was only men who actively got stressed about that fact. And it was called masculine discrepancy stress in this study. And they were the ones who were more likely to basically act out because of this uh, substance abuse, binge drinking, possibly violence. Um, in the consent myth chapter, so many um, studies that look into acts, which I, I challenge the reader into thinking this is a consent issue. You might not be taught about it in your one hour consent workshop at school because you're told, all you're basically told in that is the avoidance of assault and rape. So physical... Which is more than what we were told at school. Yeah. I mean, we didn't even have that. But even yeah. so, it goes to show that how much more nuance is required in these yeah. conversations. Yeah. So you may only be kind of alert or set up to, to comprehend an element of um, physical criminal threat, uh, whether it would be you perpetrating it or, you know, it happening to you. Um, and I try and challenge the reader into thinking... Every time you're on the street and your cat calls, that is someone not respecting your boundaries and agency. This is a consent issue. Um, and it, it's problematic. It's not raised to young people as such. Unsolicited sending of images, which is now being called cyber flashing. Um, research into cyber flashing suggests uh, it is not men. Um, it gives the idea it's exhibitionism. Mm. Researchers have found that it's a minority of people doing it who are doing it to be an exhibitionist. They're doing it because they want to solicit sexual contact. It, so it's a lot darker than the phrase cyber flashing actually gives. But if uh, the when they look at profiles and who is more likely to catcall, who is more likely to send an unsolicited dick pic, it's the same thing time and time again. It's people who rank highly with high hostile sexism scores which is a, a kind of rating system that researchers in the sort of psychology space will use. Um, so how do you get to the root of that and stop people ranking highly with hostile sexism schools? Mm. Legislation. I think legislation kind of always helps, like raises awareness and obviously it gets people into trouble for doing it. But you also have to get to, to the root of the problem, which is trying to figure out why is it we have so many people who are hostile sexists and how do we stop them being hostile sexists? Because it's likely to begin to limit a number of behaviours. I want to know, in the process of writing this book and reflecting on your own experiences, 
How has that been for you? And have you sort of gone back and viewed things through a very different lens as your research has gone on? Yeah, yeah. And what I say at the beginning of the book, I kind of do, I do like one big trigger warning, otherwise I'd be trigger warning like every third page. But um, I say, be prepared that some of the things you're gonna read might make you rewrite your sexual biography. In some cases, this will be for the better. You know, hopefully it'll make you understand that what happened, if something happened that you weren't 100% happy with and you thought you were the only one in the world, you will learn through this book, <laughs> you're like normal. Um, but the other thing is that you may learn that things are actually examples of normalized coercion that a lot of people experience. And you at the time didn't label it as coercion. You labeled it as like romantic persuasion or doing something for someone that you loved. Um, you, yeah, there are definitely times where I read something and I thought, oh my goodness. Uh, and I honestly, I honestly think if I was ever confronted with some people of my past, I wonder what I would say to them. Mm. You know, I would, th I think, get quite angry because the, the thing is, maybe it's not good to like bring up, bring up stuff from like the past, but also what if they do it to someone else? Yeah, exactly. I've, I've had moments like that as well. And I've actually been at a festival where I've seen someone who did something to my friend, but at school it was something that we all kind of passed off and laughed about. He raped her, but at the time we didn't recognize it as that. It was very complicated. And then I've seen this guy at festivals as an adult and had to stop myself from it's really hard going over and screaming at him. It's really hard, but I think it's really difficult because obviously a part of you wants to try and, I guess, educate them about what they did. But it's like when you're so angry and emotional, it's like it's never going to, I don't know, I feel like that kind of person is never going to respond well to something like that or some kind of confrontation. Yeah, it's really interesting. Obviously, as a journalist, your job is holding people to account. Um, but I guess... I, yeah, I think that in reading this book, a lot of people will be holding themselves to account where they perhaps didn't before. Mm. So that's my way of telling people. <laughs> and what are you most looking forward to in terms of next steps? Like, is there any research that you're looking forward to or any steps in the sex education world that you think are going to make ah. a real difference? I'm hopeful for... The pandemic to finally sort of sod off and for curriculums to be unaffected again, for timetables to be unaffected again, and schools will no longer have an excuse to not incentivize teachers and incentivize the general the climate of the school. You know, it, it often isn't the teachers at fault. It's normally like the kind of whole um, environment of the school, but incentivize everyone from the people who have like funding power to make sure that everyone gets robust high quality training in order to deliver it to young people and that schools hopefully think about more than just a random workshop here and there but think about how they can bring a young person's um, early sexual identity sexual maturity questions how they can bring a culture of a safe space in a school and a, a culture where their sexual health and well-being is being supported, whatever that looks like. Mm. Um, so it, it's uh, cu culture changes that, that need to happen. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sophia. Thank you.
that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you are a new listener to Millennial Love, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or anywhere else. If you are more of a visual person, you can also now watch us on independent TV. So please do head over there and subscribe, like, and share. Do all of those things so that more people can find us and you can keep up to date with everything to do with the show on Instagram. Just search Millennial Love. See you soon. If you or someone you know has been affected by child sexual abuse, call Childline on their helpline for children and young people who need to talk. Victim Support also provides emotional and practical help to victims or witnesses of any crime, whether or not it has been reported to the police. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.